Today we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 18, and so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and start making your way uh, there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we do think that you're able to follow along. A number of the chairs underneath you uh, have Bibles tucked in them. We'd uh, encourage you to reach down there and grab one and follow along. Uh, we do think it is important to be able to do so. Uh, today's message is one I've entitled, uh, The Greatest in the Kingdom. Uh, now, I believe anytime you start thinking about uh, the greatest, anything, uh, there's always seems to be some debate, and such will be uh, the case this morning. For instance, uh, if I were to ask you who is uh, the greatest actor of all time, actually I just typed in Google yesterday, I was doing this, and, and uh, I put all time greatest, and actor was the first thing that popped up, so I thought, oh, let's see what it says here. Uh, you know, I Google searched it for best actor. A number of p- different people had made up their own list of the top 10 and the top 50 or the top 100. And uh, most common names at the top included guys like Jack Nicholson, uh, Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, uh, Robert De Niro, Tom Hanks. Uh, guys definitely made this list up because those are all like mobster kind of guys. And uh, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, but how do you determine greatness when it comes to acting? What, what, what is the criteria that we use? Is it the number of blockbuster films that they've been in? Um, perhaps the number of awards that they've earned, like Oscars or uh, Golden Globes uh, that they've received through their lifetime. Maybe you have to consider uh, the virility uh, and the varying roles that they've played, possibly longevity, how long they've been able to do it. Uh, and so I, I think everyone would probably have their own way of ranking favorites. And what about, uh, what about the greatest invention of all time? I was thinking about that. What's the greatest invention of all time? Perhaps uh, Gutenberg's printing press. You know, maybe that, that was a, a one that actually changed the world. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. Uh, actually, without paper, you know, uh, the the printing press wouldn't have been a whole lot of worth it anything, okay? Um, airplanes, automobiles, a medicine like penicillin, uh, the wheel, the refrigerator, uh, the computer, the internet, a number of event inventions that we could say, wow, that's the greatest invention of all time. But how do we determine greatness? How do we say this was what uh, makes this one the greatest? I was thinking about uh, the NBA playoffs, they're going on right now, and, and oftentimes people will debate who's the greatest basketball player of all time. You've got Jordan or uh, Russell, maybe uh, Chamberlain or Kareem, and, and you can have all sorts of different debates with people. What do you use to determine, determine the answer to that question? Maybe most championships, most individual uh, accolades, best stats. And, and if you look at each one of those ones individually, you'd come up with a different person at the top. And so how do you decide Because there isn't a universally accepted criteria that that trumps all others, there will always be debates. And there will always be disagreements as to who is the No matter if we're talking about actors or inventions or athletes or, in our case this morning, the disciples and the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Today in our portion of Scripture, we're going to find out that there was a debate going on amongst the disciples. They wanted to know who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And interestingly, Jesus is going to answer their question 
But he's going to answer it in a way that few probably saw coming. And so let's read our text this morning, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to cover verses 1 through 14 this morning, but I'm only going to open up by reading verses 1 through 5. Uh, Will you please stand as we read this morning's text, just as we honor God's word. Again, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5 is where we'll start uh, this morning. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning, the opportunity to uh, gather together to sing praises unto you, to uh, rightfully enthrone you uh, within our hearts, Father. And I pray that we've been able to do that uh, this morning as we sung uh, unto you our praise and worship. Father, as we continue to worship you through the study of your word, uh, Lord, we want your word to uh, impact us, to change us. Lord, we come with uh, not only an uh, excitement, but an anticipation that you're going to speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is living, it's powerful, and it cuts uh, down to the marrow and discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts and mind and Lord, we just pray that your work, your word would do its work in our lives this morning. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to you, lead and guide our time through your word. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In verse 1, we read that the disciples came to Jesus asking him, Who then is the greatest? in the kingdom of heaven. Now it's actually Mark and Luke's gospel account that informs us that they had been disputing between each other as to who was the greatest. Luke 9.46 tells us, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Notice that Luke's gospel says, Which of them would be the greatest? Uh, This Uh, label of the greatest wasn't even open to the likes of Moses or Elijah or David. In their perception, it was definitely one of them. And so they were disputing amongst each other. And since they were disputing, it's obvious that they weren't all using the same criteria. Each person probably had their own thoughts and or nominees for the greatest in the kingdom. Perhaps Peter's name was mentioned probably by Peter. We know that he opens his mouth a lot and gets himself into trouble. He alone walked on water with the Lord. It was Peter that the Father gave divine insight to when he answered Jesus' question about who the people said Jesus was. Remember, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just last week, we saw how Jesus Uh, He actually paid Peter's temple tax for him. And so maybe he was like using these. Hey, look at, you know, Jesus paid my temple tax and I got the divine revelation and I'm one of the three that gets to go away with him. And maybe he's building his case. Others maybe refuted the idea of Peter, stating his many shortcomings and his 
big mouth that often got him into trouble as disqualifiers. Remember that Jesus identified Peter's words and attitude with that of Satan when he said, get behind me, Satan, when he tried to say, oh, you're not going to go and and be uh, crucified and that's not going to happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He couldn't be the greatest. Perhaps John, the beloved disciple, uh, maybe he was the greatest. And, And I imagine that there were more than just two or three names being tossed back and forth, considering the group of 12 disciples. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a good eight or ten names that were being tossed back and forth as to who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It seems that the disciples could not come to an agreement, and so they decide to come to Jesus to let him be the deciding vote. And he would be, uh, obviously, the authority on the matter and would be able to once and for all settle the dispute properly identify which of the twelve were going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or at least that's what they thought would happen. You know, before we continue, I do want to make just this small point. You know, the desire to be great for God or to do great things for God it isn't a bad thing. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 actually speaks of a man that desires the position of a bishop or an overseer and acknowledges that such a desire is a good thing. However, we always have to make sure that we check that desire, that that desire is examined. Why do we have such a desire? What is the motive behind wanting to be great or to do great things? Is the motive so that you are acclaimed or esteemed so that you are uh, revered? Is it uh, so that you would be honored? Uh, is it so that you can have uh, maybe more say or more influence or more power? If so, then I would say that that type of desire is a hindrance to the gospel and to the kingdom of heaven. If, however, your desire to be great or to do great things is so that God's kingdom is greatly impacted and so that God is glorified in everything that is done, then there's no no shame in such a desire. When God's glorification is the goal in it all, then that sort of ambition, that sort of desire to be great and to do great things for the Lord is an admirable thing. The famous English Protestant missionary and Baptist minister William Carey said, Expect great things from God. And he said, Attempt great things for God. I would encourage you guys similarly. Don't be scared to do great things for God. Especially if your desire in doing so is simply to honor and glorify the Lord. Now, we can't be so sure about these 12 disciples' motive. I think their motive was a little skewed. Uh, we don't, not told specifically, but based upon how Jesus responds and based upon how, what we hear from other portions of Scripture, uh, it, their desire and wanting to be identified as the greatest was not so great for them. And so let's see what Jesus tells them about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Let's ver- read again verse 2 and 3. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in his response to the disciples' question about greatness in the kingdom of heaven, calls forth a little child. And he sets 
that child before the disciples as an illustration. The child's about to become an object lesson for the disciples. Jesus begins his response really prerequisite. Before you can even be considered the greatest, there's something that must take place first. In verse 3, Jesus explains that you must first enter the kingdom before you can even begin to be measured for greatness. Jesus said, unless you're converted and become as little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so let's look at what that, those words mean. Converted, it means to change or churn in your mind, to become another kind of person. And so he's saying you need to be converted. You need to have a change of mind. You need to become like a different kind of person than what you are right now. Here Jesus was telling them to be converted, to become another kind of person. In order for them to even get into the kingdom, they would need to change the type of mindset that they had. The kingdom of heaven is one established on self-sacrifice and self-denial. Jesus instructed his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. They were thinking about ambition and desire to be the greatest in a a worldly sense. To be the the second in command there at Jesus' side when he entered his kingdom. And we know that this is how the disciples were thinking because later on we're going to see that they actually come to Jesus with that type of request. It'll be in Matthew chapter 20, and so we'll get to it in a few weeks. Uh, but they're going to come and say, you know, petition. I want to be on the right and left when you enter in your kingdom. You know, they, they wanted that position and that prestige, that power. These disciples had the wrong type of mindset when it came to greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus said that they needed to change the way they were thinking, to churn in their mind, to become another kind of person, to become like little children, he said. What does it mean to become like little children? The word, the word little children is, uh, in, is the word paideon in the Greek. And when I came across that Greek word, I, instant, I always try and find words that it's like, oh, that sounds like an English word, and that would be an easy like, transition. So I thought... Oh, that's where we get the word Padawan, Paideon. But then I realized uh, that that's not a real English word. And then I realized I watched too much Star Wars. But uh, I thought, that's a great connection. Paideon, the little child, and a, uh, the Jedi's little pupil, the Padawan. But it's not a real word. So some of you guys are like, yeah, it is. I use it all the time. But it's not a real word. Back to Paideon. It, it means not just a child, but it means a small child. Okay? Most likely the child before Jesus was, was what we would maybe typically categorize as a, as a preschooler today. Maybe three, four years old is the idea of how old this child was that was set before Jesus. Just uh, Jesus, he t- told the disciples they needed to become like little children, like little preschoolers. Now, I, I hope you realize that there is a difference between being childish and being like. Okay, and I think there's a distinction that Jesus is drawing here. Childish, you know, generally it points to unfavorable qualities like uh, immaturity or self-centeredness that often children deal with. Okay? Uh, childlike, it usually denotes something favorable or admirable uh, regarding children, like maybe their, their trust or their innocence. You say, oh, it's so childlike and it's endearing and it's good. Okay? To be certain, Jesus is not telling his disciples to be childish, okay? but he's calling them rather to be childlike. 
what is childlike? You know, I was trying to think, and I'm like, oh, this is what childlike means to me. But I thought, I need to go to the scriptures. And one of the scriptures talk about children and their place and relationship with the Father. And so I got a couple of different verses here that describe uh, what children and their place and how they're to behave and act. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it commends us as children to desire the pure milk of the word. And so uh, we're kind of like that. We need to be desiring the pure milk of the word. Matthew 6, uh, verse 31 and 32, it encourages us not to worry about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we're going to wear, but to trust that our Heavenly Father uh, would provide for us. Okay? 1 Corinthians uh, tells us to be babes in malice, uh, meaning not, not knowing the ways of malice, that we would be uh, innocent of, of evil things. Children, they're exhorted to honor their father and mother and to obey them in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. And so we see some, some attributes from Scripture regarding children that are admirable qualities. We're not to worry about provision, okay, but instead to trust in the Father to provide. We're not to be malicious. So we're to have an innocence about us regarding evil things. We're to honor and obey our Father and, and follow and desire and have a longing for His Word. Greatness begins with these sorts of childlike attributes. One other thing that Jesus specifically spoke of in regards to childlike attributes is in verse 4. And so we're going to read that. Verse 4, it says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told them that they needed to be childlike in humility. How are children humble, you may ask? Uh, for the most part, children, they're, they're not concerned with seeking positions of power or prominence. They have no need for power or prominence. Okay? Uh, children don't scheme on ways to make it big or to increase their social, social stature. They don't envy or relish in the things, worldly things like wealth or uh, power. And that's why they, they play with the cardboard box that you bought, of that really expensive toy that you bought, and they, they just play with the box, right? Because they don't really care how much it costs, and they really don't care if it was a hard find to get. And you're like, I had to go to this many different stores, and he's playing with the box, and we get upset. But kids don't really have a, they don't have a, a mindset that thinks, oh, this is really expensive, and this is a really cool thing. It's, they enjoy what brings them simple pleasure, and the cardboard box brings them simple pleasure, a little kid with, with ragtag hand-me-downs will play with and think nothing of it. A child dressed up in the latest name-brand clothes. They have no sense of, of social position or standing. This is what Jesus, I believe, was trying to get to the, the disciples to understand. That they needed to be the same way. They shouldn't be concerned with seeking positions of power and prominence. They shouldn't be scheming on ways to increase their social standing. They, they shouldn't be greatly concerned with the riches of this world or, or how to obtain those things. Jesus said if they would just humble themselves in this manner and, and stop thinking about being the greatest or, or jockeying for positions, that they would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jesus, yet again, He turns things upside down on them. 
If you want to be the greatest, humble yourself like a child. You're like, that doesn't make sense. In Mark's account of the same event, Jesus is recorded as saying, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. In Mark 9.35. In Luke's gospel record of this event, Jesus said, He who is least among you, all will be the greatest. And it doesn't make sense. The, the disciples, it would be hard for them to process, but Jesus was emphasizing that the way to greatness was through humility, through service, by putting everyone else above you. That was how you would become great in his kingdom. That you would say, I don't care about position, I don't care about prominence, and I don't care about being on the right or the left. I'm just here to serve and do what I can, and, and that's, that's the person who becomes great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, and the same is true today, you guys. Greatness in the Lord's kingdom still comes through humility, service, and putting others above you. You know, I, I understand and I know that a lot of you guys have to deal with the pressure of making the grade and excelling, making sure that you continue to progress through the system in order to, to make rank, to continue in your career. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, as Christians, I believe that you ought to be the best at what you do. And you ought to stand out as you serve within the military and as you serve in your jobs because you should be doing it as unto the Lord. But I imagine that sometimes it's easy to get caught up and possibly looking toward the next rank and seeking out opportunities to make yourself look better than the guy next to you that's reaching for the same type of promotion. And I am in no way a career counselor, and so don't look at me in that way. Okay? Uh, I don't claim to know how things work in the military kingdom. Okay? But we are told of how things work in God's kingdom. And if you want to be great, humble yourself. Serve others, put others' interest above your own, and the Lord will reward you. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, I'm no career counselor, but I will say this, however. I've had the blessed privilege of being able to meet some incredible men and women in the military service while serving the Lord in, in Okinawa and now here in Iwakuni. I've been doing this for over 10 years now, and I've met a number of great, uh, incredible, influential, prominent individuals that were s- humble servants that put the interest of their fellow service members above themselves, and God blessed them tremendously. Back in Okinawa, we, we had an actual an 06 colonel that served in our ushers ministry, and he would be out parking cars and directing traffic in the heat of the Okinawan summer. So you can imagine just the sweat kind of dripping off of him. Okay, uh, And then when it wasn't that way, usually if you've been to Okinawa, you know that the rain comes in. It's kind of monsoon and just floods on you for an hour or so. And, and whenever it was rainy, he'd always bring an extra set of clothes because he would be walking people back and forth to their cars using an umbrella. He stayed after church and he cleaned uh, up the bathroom stalls. He was a, a humble servant. And the Lord blessed him in his military career and in with his walk with the Lord. From time to time, I speaking 
uh, with some of the younger Marines, giving them some pointers, telling them about different opportunities. And he seemed to genuinely care about the guys that he served with. And it's a lesson, you know, that Jesus, I believe, is trying to get across to his disciples, this idea of humble service and putting others above yourself. You know, I can tell you a number of stories, and many others just like that guy. Men and women who were successful because they knew and understood what it meant to humbly serve others. And I would encourage you guys to do the same. Let's look at verse 5. It says, Whosoever... Or excuse me, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. In verse 5, Jesus continues using this child as an illustration. And he tells the disciples, whoever receives a little child like the one before them receives him. I see here just a, a Jesus loves the children. He identified himself with them to the disciples. Oftentimes we see people were trying to forbid the children to come. And Jesus says, don't forbid them to come. And he would welcome them. The idea of receiving a child that meant to care for and serve a child. Jesus was continuing to challenge the disciples, indicating that greatness comes through serving the helpless. It comes through serving the needy, not just serving those that we can get a reward from. We need to be willing to serve those that, that can't return to us the love and care that we give unto them. And we need to be willing to serve the least of all. Oftentimes, I believe we can be tempted into helping someone out because we think the favor will be returned or that we're going to get something out of it. And Jesus wanted His disciples to serve not with the hope that they would get something out of it, but with the satisfaction of knowing that what they were doing was like they were doing it unto Him. He said, if you receive one little child like this in my name, are you receiving me? We are encouraged in Scripture to do our service as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. And when we willingly serve the least of all, we do so with the sense of serving Jesus and blessing him. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to make a little bit of a plug for our children's ministry. Okay? Serving children is not always the most glamorous position within the church, and I'll be honest. It's difficult at times. Sometimes the kids can be a little rambunctious and energetic. Uh, And it can be difficult to keep their attention. And it can be difficult to get them all to listen at the same time. I know I've served in children's ministry for a number of years. And even though it may not be the most glamorous position or the easiest, it's still one that the Lord would encourage us to be a part of, I believe. To receive a little child in the name of Jesus and to love on them, To teach them about God's word is a tremendous responsibility. And it's an incredible blessing. We are shorthanded right now in our children's ministry. And we've been announcing it for a while now. Uh, This month and through the summer, we have a a number of families that are either PCSing or traveling. And and the month of June has a number of people serving in the children's ministry. Uh, I was looking at the calendar. Three out of the five Sundays, they're in the children's ministry class. It's like, well, they get to 
They spend more time with the kids than they do get to spend in here. And I thought, man, we ought to be able to change that. You know, we ought to be able to have a little bit more people uh, help out. So I want to make that plug. Okay, uh, we need to be, we need more people to help out, and that you would please prayerfully consider plugging in, helping out with our children's ministry. Jesus had a heart for children, and when we receive one little child like this, we are receiving uh, Jesus as well. We're doing it as unto them as we serve. And so I want to encourage you guys to be prayerful about that. Okay, off my soapbox, back to our study. Verse 6, it says, uh, verse 6 and 7, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Wow. That is an extreme response from Jesus. It seems like he's channeling his inner Marlon Brando there, right? He's with this millstone around this guy's neck. Jesus, he took matters involving these little ones very seriously. Okay, in verse 6 where it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... That word sin, it's actually the Greek word for a stumbling block. And so the idea being portrayed is that if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble in their relationship with the Lord, that it would be better for that person to take a millstone, fasten it around his neck, and to be tossed into the sea. Okay? A millstone was a large stone. Okay? Some Oh, it's this little tiny hand stone. No, it was, if you look up the word, it's actually uh, the donkey's millstone. It was the huge millstone that had to be rotated around by a donkey. I mean, it is large. Okay? This was a... uh, It would not turn out well for that person. Let's just say that. Okay? Jesus takes it seriously when one of his little ones is led into sin. Little ones, it does not only mean these children, but also those who have humbled themselves as children in the manner that Jesus described. And he said it's a a wicked thing to sin, okay? But it's a far greater evil to lead others into sin. But even worse than that, leading one of Jesus' little ones into sin is far worse because you then initiate someone into an instance or a pattern of sin that corrupts whatever innocence they had of their childlike, and they have that innocence about them, and you're introducing sin into their life, you're, you're introducing them into corruption. And Jesus takes things, those things very seriously. We need to be mindful of the influence that we have upon others. And I think a lot of us, maybe as parents, we immediately default to our kids and we think about the influence that we have on our kids. But it's not just about those kids. It's not just about our own children if we have children. But, but all children, uh, those that we have opportunity to lead or help or even the, those young in, the walk, in their walk with the Lord, those maybe immature or still growing, you know, uh, we need to be careful of the example that we leave behind. We need to be careful of the influence that we uh, have upon them. Verse 7, Jesus gives two woes. And I believe the first woe was more like a, a lamentation as Jesus speaks about the offenses that must upon the world. 
The word offenses, it can also be translated as enticements to sin. And I think that Jesus was explaining to his disciples uh, was that the, the world doesn't have a choice, really, when it comes to certain offenses. The world we live in is a world that has experienced the fall and subsequent introduction of human sinful nature. Because we live in a fallen world, because we are fallen people, it's inevitable that offenses will come. But the second woe, I believe, is different. The second woe is more of a woe of condemnation, of of judgment. And it stands as a warning to the one who brings or introduces people to sin. This woe would be for that person that leads one of Jesus' little ones into sin. Not a wise thing to do at all. Jesus promises to deal with those and hold accountable those that cause others to be enticed by sin. And so we need to be mindful of the influence that we have. Verse 8, it says, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Jesus, again, he illustrates how serious we should take sin and the lengths we ought to go to in order to get rid of it. Jesus previously spoke similarly in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, about taking drastic measures to removing things that cause us to sin. I do want to make one thing clear. Okay? Jesus is not advocating for bodily mutilation. Okay? He is, however, trying to make his listeners realize the seriousness consequences of our sin. Romans teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 In addition, our sin not only earns for us death, but it also keep us, keeps us separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 talks about how our iniquities have separated us from God. Verse 8 and 9, they give us a picture of what the unrepentant sinner has to look forward to in his separation from God. In verse 8, Jesus describes a place of everlasting fire. And in verse 9, He describes being cast into hell fire. Hell is not a place that you want to go to. And so Jesus explains some drastic means that you should be willing to go through in order to avoid it. Cutting off your hand or or foot or plucking out your eye are, are drastic measures that are meant to be a little bit of shock and awe here as Jesus speaks to these disciples. He was teaching them that they needed to be serious. They needed to be serious about getting rid of things that cause them to sin. If it be the hands or the feet or the eye, okay, get rid of them. Okay? It's better to enter into life maimed or uh, lame or blind than it is to go to hell with your whole entire body. We need to be serious about getting rid of things that cause us to sin. Perhaps the Lord is speaking to some of you here this morning and He's telling you that you need to get rid of sin in your life. You've been allowing it to go unchecked in your life. You've tolerated it or you thought that it really wasn't that big of a deal. 
But I believe the Lord would tell you this morning to cut it off. To get rid of it. And it's not worth it. Maybe that means getting rid of cable. Maybe that means going back to the old style flip phone. Maybe that means cutting up credit cards or deleting certain accounts. I don't don't know what it may be in your life. But I do know this. That if you don't cut it out, it will eventually lead to destruction. It will lead to the destruction of your life, your marriage, your family, your career. That's what happens with sin. It just wants to destroy. And that will not be satisfied until it destroys everything that you hold dear in your life. And you need to realize that you need to cut it out. And you need to remove it. Don't let unchecked sin lead you into destruction. Deal with it. Bring it before the Lord. Bring it before a brother or sister in Christ. Help yourself be accountable to someone. Take this matter serious. Jesus made it very clear that this is a very serious thing. Verse 10, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus here, he warns us not to despise any of these little ones, indicating that we're to care for and support them, look after them as he's already suggested. And then Jesus says something interesting about their angels. And how the angels are, are constantly before the presence of the Lord. And we're not going to get into the, the study of angels today, angelology, uh, that is. But I do want to have, uh, I do want to have just a few simple things to say about angels, okay? First and foremost, angels are real, okay? We find them throughout the Bible, okay? Maybe not how Hollywood portrays them, though, okay? Uh, oftentimes they look just like regular Men, they would maybe be glowing or something like that, but the whole halo and the white gown and the flapping wings, we don't see that within the uh, the Bible as an accurate description of what angels look like. But angels definitely are real. Okay, We find them in the scriptures. What else do we know about angels? God uses them to deliver messages. Okay, He uses them to help guide and protect people. Psalm 91 verse 11 says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. The Lord sends them to help us and to minister to us. Hebrews 1 verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And here, based upon verse 10, it would seem that children have special angels that intercede on their behalf before the Father. Okay? It's where we get the, the thought or the idea of guardian angels. Okay? Uh, it's not very, we're not getting a whole lot of detail about it, and so uh, the problem I think a lot of people make is that they place an overemphasis upon the angels. Okay? We are to keep our eyes, our heart, and our prayers to the God of the angels and not to the angels of God. Ultimately, I believe what Jesus is pointing out to the disciples and to us as well is that he cares about kids and that we ought to as well. And he gives this example of how they have angels and they're before the Father and, and they care for him and he looks after them. And so I believe that's what it, the point he's trying to make here. He's not giving us uh, doctrine upon angels necessarily. And so another study, maybe perhaps another day. 
Let's continue. Verse 11 through 14 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. To start off again, like last week, you guys may recall that we talked about how Matthew chapter 17, verse 21 may not be in some of your Bibles. Again, this happens today. Matthew chapter 18, verse 11 may not be in some of your Bibles. Uh, If it's not, there's probably a footnote down below. And uh, last week... I gave an explanation regarding the reasons why some of our Bible translations are different. And so we won't go into the details again this week and bore you guys with that again. But if it's, you weren't here last week and you're interested and you want to know why either your Bible does have verse 11 or why your Bible doesn't have verse 11, I'd love to speak to you about that after church and make myself available for that. Okay? Verse 12 through 14, it speaks about the parable of the lost sheep. Okay, remember that a parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Okay, an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Usually, the earthly story is readily understood okay, as to what it means. Okay? Uh, as we look at this parable, we understand uh, very easily that a good shepherd would not let a sheep that has gone astray be left out to the dangers of the mountainous wilderness. Okay, a shepherd uh, would feed its flock, allow uh, them to graze through the fields, and then round them up. Usually he would put them in some sort of corral of some kind. And he would count his sheep to ensure that he had them all. And upon finding out that he was short one sheep, a good shepherd would go and search for the sheep that had gone astray, leaving the 99 behind, knowing that they were safe. Perhaps he had someone else working with them as well. It wasn't as if he just left them wandered into the wilderness as well. They would be together. And he would go looking for that one stray sheep. If the shepherd finds the one sheep that went astray, then he rejoices over this one sheep. Even though the other 99 didn't go astray, and, and this one was... What do we say? The bad sheep, okay, that went and strayed off. He rejoices over it. Yeah. The fact was that the one was not safe, and the ninety-nine were safe. Okay? And so, because of the potential danger it faced, the shepherd rejoices, knowing that the sheep has been saved from the dangers of the wilderness and being by itself. Okay. So, how does this apply to us spiritually? We understand the earthly story, right? We kind of get that. How does it apply to us spiritually? Well, as verse 14 indicates, Jesus is the good shepherd that cares about the life of those that have gone astray. Jesus is the one that goes out in pursuit of those that have gone astray. And he greatly rejoices when just one of those that have gone astray are saved from the dangers of this fallen world that we live in. I believe that this parable teaches us a few things about the love of God. First of all, it shows us that God's love for us is unconditional. Notice that the shepherd, he didn't say to himself, well, that that sheep strayed when he should have stayed. And I hope he learns his lesson out there in the dangerous wilderness. And I hope he makes it back to me. 
the, the love that the Lord has for us is, is not based upon whether we stay or we stray. He loves us not based upon what we do, but who we are. We are His children. And He loves us. Also it shows us that God's love, it, it saves us from our own troubles. The shepherd, he's the one that goes out to get the sheep. The sheep doesn't probably even realize the problem that he's in. The sheep doesn't even know, realize the danger that surrounds him. He doesn't do anything to make his situation any better. He thinks, I'm just in the mountains. No big deal. But Jesus knows the danger. And a lot of us are out there, you know, we might know people or, or, or even ourselves. We might be out in the world. And there's dangers around us and we're thinking we're doing okay. And Jesus is coming out to us because He wants to come to us and He wants to save us and He wants to show us that there's dangers out there that we need to be protected from. And His love, it saves us from those troubles. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love Him because He first loved us. It's Him that initiated it. It's Him that did it, that came out to the sheep. Romans 5.8 says that but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we are still sinners... Christ died for us. Okay? It wasn't because we were great people. Okay? It was because of His great love for us that He came and sought out this sheep and us as sheep. As the Scriptures say, we've all, like sheep, have gone astray. And it's Jesus who comes and it's His love, the Lord, love of the Lord, His un- unconditional love that saves us from our sin. Next week, we will continue in the book of Matthew, picking up right where we left off. It's going to continue the same type of theme, and so I want to encourage you guys to read ahead. Read uh, the rest of Matthew chapter 18. I hope to be able to do verses 15 through 35. It's a big chunk of verses. Uh, We may not do them all, but uh, please read ahead and and pray and see the Lord uh, might, see if the Lord might show you something so that when we gather together, uh, it's not necessarily new revelation, but it's confirmation of something that the Lord's already been showing you. Today we covered a, a good bit of info, and I hope and pray that the Lord ministered to your heart. Uh, but I wanted to save a little bit of time. We have communion. Uh, we do as a church body. We participate in observing the Lord's Supper uh, the first Sunday of every month. It's just a day that we've set aside. Uh, to partake, and so uh, we're going to do that uh, here this morning. And so I want to invite Nick and the worship team back up uh, just to lead us in a time of worship. And here's how we're going to do things here uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to have the ushers come forward, and they're going to uh, pass out uh, the bread, and they're going to pass out the cup as the worship team leads us in a time of worship. And... uh, I want to encourage you guys, just on your own, as we're worshiping the Lord, as you receive the elements, to pray, to ask the Lord, Lord, is there, hopefully there was something, Lord, what are you saying to me here this morning? And that you would commune with Him and just pray uh, silently and communicate with Him, or perhaps you're here with your family, you want to pray with them together i'd encourage you guys to do so as well uh but seek the lord okay a communion as instructed in first uh, corinthians 11 it's a it's a time that we uh of remembrance it's a time where we remember 
uh, Christ's body that was broken for us. It's a time where we remember his blood that was shed out, shed for us. And, and it's also a time of reflection. It's not only a time of remembrance, but it's a time of reflection. Because it says uh, in verse 26, or excuse me, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread of, or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, as we worship the Lord, to remember what he's done for you to remember his body that was broken for you, to remember his blood that has established a new covenant of grace in our lives. But I also want you to reflect and to examine yourself and say, Lord, you know what? Is there things that need to be changed? Are there things, maybe, maybe there's sin that we talked about today that's hindering us and we need to get rid of it. We need to confess that to the Lord today. So I want to encourage you guys to examine yourself as well. And so... Uh, we're going to do that at the end of the time of worship. Nick's just going to close us in a, in, a, in a prayer. If you hadn't partaken by then, you can partake at the end of his prayer. But uh, I encourage you just worship the Lord. Reflect on what he's done for you. And to examine yourself and where you're at with the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's worship. <laughs>